Hello and welcome to another episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast, your creatively conscious mortality podcast, yours, it's yours. And we're so happy to be in your ear yet again, loving this thing, this project, this medium, this way you're going to die showing up. I just get on these calls with the people that we're having as guests and I just am so happy. Say they make a list of things they want to touch on. It's like grief and <laughs> collective grief and trauma and <laughs> just the weirdo <laughs> in the world. Maybe not. I shouldn't say that. Not to this audience. I'm not a weirdo. I just want to talk about these things. It's how I've said it. You've heard me talk about it if you've been listening to the podcast or been to any of our events. You know, it's I want to be talking about the heart of the matter. I want to share about those things that we're carrying around that we're not talking about maybe enough, that we're not talking about as much as all the things our job requires us to talk about or the things we talk about, you know, out in the streets when we run into people. You know, like baseball. And uh, <laughs> I mean, there's all there's a place for all these things. But, you know, you're going to die. Maybe the basic way of putting why it exists in the world is because I just wanted to talk about I'm going to die. You're going to die. Can we talk about that and all the heartbreak and grief and hard parts of being mortal that connect to it? But also, so then, the joy and the aliveness and... Here's another episode holding all those parts. So glad you're listening. What I'm really enjoying about the queue of guests is that there has been some people that I've never talked to before, but have had a significant influence on my life. And if you listen to our last episode with Amelia Meath, that's like the great, most recent version of it. And boy, what a treat that was to be able to acknowledge her and and then also talk about her version of being a creative mortal. But then also what's special about the podcast is having guests that I've known for years and love sharing with others. And today's guest is a really great version of that. She's one of those people that you meet in my life. She's one of those people that you meet where you think simultaneously like I want more I want to talk more to them I want to connect more to them I want to create more with them you want to right there's just that conscious like oh yes and that came from her showing up at one of our open mics years ago and getting up on stage and and sharing her writing and I have it actually I think what she read that night maybe like an early version of it I'm holding The School of the Dead, a manifesto by Angela Hennessy. And this is my copy. And I love it. And I keep it very available. These words that I turned to accidentally just now that I did want to read to you about grief. Her words here, grieve on the daily. Make time every day to grieve. Make grieving out of everyday gestures make folding the laundry grieving, make sweeping the floor grieving, make dancing grieving. Crying is beneficial, but not required. Just say, I'm grieving right now while you are doing whatever you are doing. I love that crying is beneficial, but not required. And we'll get into more of that when you listen to our conversation. We touch on uh, more of that idea. And I love how... Angela has taught me to grieve and I love that I got a chance to tell her so, but also what I love about doing the podcast lately, especially with some of these old friends of mine is to have conversations about things that I haven't talked to them about yet. And that happens in this episode. Angela was shot on her stoop and it's, I would say, maybe arguably part of why I know her. Maybe we wouldn't have met like these things that happened to us that bring us together. Like my mom's death is why I'm talking to you right now in this podcast, why I'm in your ear just like this. And so Angela going through what she'd been through, getting shot, almost dying, like 
us being connected is because of that. And we've never talked about it. And I wanted to, and it seems kind of strange. You're like, well, what, like here on a podcast for the first time, but the reality is like, this is what was needed. It's what I felt compelled towards. And it's what I want the podcast to be like a place where Angela and I are getting what we need before anybody else. But as long as we're doing that, then what we do share together could be an offering to others in the ways they need it. And so I do hope that of this episode, that as you listen, you get what you need. Angela Hennessy is my friend. I love her. <laughs> Angela Hennessy is an Oakland-based artist. She's an associate professor at California College of the Arts, where she teaches courses on visual and cultural narratives of death and contemporary art. Through writing, studio work, and ritual performance, her practice questions assumptions about death and the dead themselves. In 2015, she survived a gunshot wound while interrupting a violent assault on the street in front of her house, alternating between poem prayer and call to action. Her manifesto that I read a little bit from just a moment ago, the school of the dead was written in the following months of her recovery from that gunshot wound. And she lectures and teaches workshops nationally. I hope that you like use this episode as an invitation to her being in the world, her creativity, her mortality, her mortal being, all those things. Welcome to this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Angela Hennessy. Well, I am an artist. I am a writer. I am a mother, a daughter. I am a griever. I am a person who makes rituals. Um, in my, you know, professional realm, I'm also a teacher at California College of the Arts, and I teach classes on the relationship between death and art, and how artists respond to grief and loss through their creative work. So, thinking about aesthetic and somatic practices, how our making of things or sometimes unmaking of things is a way mm -hmm. that we work through grief. Without getting ahead of ourselves, um, would you say that you've always been inclined towards that conversation or did that come, you know, in the last few years? When did you really start to see yourself showing up in that intersection? Well, I think I've always had an inclination towards making things um, as a way of, of processing experiences or things that I didn't understand. So, mm -hmm. you know, I can look back at images of myself when I was a little girl. I can look back at the drawings that I was making as a child, and I can see that I was working through grief. And, you know, I didn't have the language, of course, at that time. Mm -hmm. um, so it probably really wasn't until maybe undergrad when I started processing the loss of my father and what it, what it meant for me growing up without him. And then when I met his family, when I met my family on my father's side, um, and at that time, you know, he had died already. So I didn't actually meet him as an adult. Mm -hmm. So in undergrad, I started uh, processing, you know, what it meant to lose someone that you didn't even know, you know, what it meant mm -hmm. to miss someone that I didn't actually know. Mm. How did he die? He died in a fire. He died in a fire on New Year's Eve. Mm. I'm probably going to cry the whole time we talk so i'm just gonna say that i mean i'm crying now because i'm not i didn't of all the things we've worked on and been a part of together and the way we've connected i sort of can't believe that i'm only 
now really hearing that or knowing it, I'm, I'm almost sure maybe that I hadn't before, but that seems kind of crazy to me. Um, to feel like I'm hearing it for the first time. Yeah. I'm trying to remember if I wrote about that in the manifesto and mm. I, I don't think I did specifically. I used to talk about it a lot because the work that I was making in the studio had a lot to do with ash and debris mm. and like dust and things that kind of looked like, you know, the remnants of a fire. Um, mm -hmm. There's lots of, you know, I, I mean, there's lots of mythologies and ways that I think about fire as a transformative element that mm -hmm. still play into my work, but maybe a little bit less so now. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, this, this is, this isn't the first time I've felt this way. You know, I had another conversation with a friend for the podcast and what it offered the opportunity for was something that I felt like I hadn't had with them yet. And so there is a way that I feel that about this and that, you know, with respect and sensitivity and trust that, if it were ever time to talk about it, it would be okay. I know you say you're pretty open and, you know, visible with what you've been through, but I, you know, I, I guess there is part of me that's not surprised that I didn't for sure know that about your father. And then also partly because I think of the, what happened to you in 2015, you know, we've never really just gotten the chance to sit and, talk it all through and and it is something I want to touch on because I don't think we can go much into the rest of the things without acknowledging some of this you know like it feels important to already acknowledge your dad's death and and so then maybe we could spend a little time talking about what happened in 2015 as much or as little as you want to share yeah um well, what happened in 2005, I mean, it's so interesting the way to hear it phrased like that. And I, I, I often notice, you know, people will refer to it as an event or as a, you know, it's like, there's so much awkwardness yes. around it. And, and, you know, I, mm -hmm. I recognize that and, um, and it's awkward for me too. You know, it's really awkward. Um, but so what, ha what had happened was, um, I, I was in, I was in a shooting. I was involved in a shooting that took place in front of my house. And, um, I ended up getting shot. Um, there was a, an assault that I witnessed on the street, um, literally right in front of my house. And I went out to, you know, to try to, well, not to physically get in the way, but just to use my voice. And I went out and I, I yelled and um, it was a young man who was, um, you know, uh, beating up on this young woman. I, I don't know who she was. I assume maybe they were boyfriend and girlfriend or something. I don't know. And so I yelled at them and, and he stopped, actually. I thought, you know, I was kind of surprised because I had gone to the door, you know, I had looked out the window, I went to the door, um, and I went out on the front steps of my house and was like, okay, I'm gonna make my voice really big. And, and I yelled out at, at him on the street. And then he stopped and he let go of her. And so I thought, wow, that actually worked. And I turned around to go back into my house. And I looked back at them, I looked over my left shoulder. And when I looked back, he was pointing a gun at me. And uh, I just remember very specifically looking into this, you know, black hole of the end of the gun. And, and then I, you know, I was walking into my house and then all of a sudden realized that I couldn't move my leg. And, you know, I, I, I have a vague memory of hearing 
one of the shots or two, you know, I, I don't know, but I realized I couldn't move my leg. And then I was standing kind of in the threshold of my door and I felt like something under my feet. I was standing in my own blood and, um, I just, you know, I remember like kind of trying, I was trying to move. I felt like that urgency of like trying to get my phone, trying to find some, you know, towels. I realized like, oh, there was blood coming out of my leg. I was trying to like hold towels on my leg and simultaneously to keep the door closed. There, there was some kind of debris that, you know, I mean, there were, there was a hole in my door. So there was some debris that was blocking closing the door. And when I finally, when I got my phone and I sat down in the hallway at the entrance to my house and was holding the door closed with one hand, trying to dial 911, trying to um, stop the bleeding on my leg and, you know, sitting there feeling like, you know, what, like what, what, what just happened, you know? Um, so, you know, that, that was the, that was the, what happened in 2015. Yeah. I mean, there, I think, um, there's both admitting that there's awkwardness, you know, um, in, in maybe some of the reason why we haven't talked about it. Like, cause I, cause I know now talking to you, obviously <laughs> that you're down to talk about it. Um, but I think there's careful, you know, there's caution about it and not knowing for sure and feeling like even something sacred about it. And I, I, I actually think while I know you're right, that there's awkwardness when someone's like, so what happened in, with that event or whatever people's words they do put to, to it? Um, I think for me, I do. I think I know that like I couldn't possibly put words to it even beyond only just using a couple words you put into your Google form when I asked you like, fill this out so we can, you know, know what you want to talk about that I could be like, all right, well, I know what year it happened and I'll leave it at that. Cause if I, I'm not going to put words on it before she does. And that there's something that feels important about that. And so kind of want to acknowledge the like both. Yeah, boy, what a big thing to have anyone know how to approach the awkwardness you feel from people, but also like the bigness of it. That word sacred feels like really true. Like it's not mine to put words to until you you give them to me, I guess. Yeah. One thing, um, someone said to me, this was maybe four, four or five months after the shooting and was actually the mother of one of my students. And it was, you know, after I was, you know, recovered, after I had been recovering, um, and I had gone to, it was one of my first, like, functions out in the world again after that, you know, aside from going to hospitals and, you know, uh, physical therapy and things like that. And... How long, how long after? It was about, I think about five months. Hmm. But this woman came up to me and, you know, I knew who she was. She was the mother of one of my students and she just, she took my hand and she kind of got in my face and she looked right, she looked me right in the eyes and she just said, these things change you. And that was it. It was like, it was this incredible moment because she wasn't trying to fix anything. She wasn't trying to make me feel better. She wasn't, um, she wasn't awkward or uncomfortable uncomfortable about it. She just looked right at me and just said, these things change you. And in that moment, it was exactly what I needed to hear was just Mm -hmm. that recognition that like, yes, I am changed. This has changed me. Mm. Um, But those, the months following, I spent a lot of time at home. I had to uh, you know, I had to cancel. I let go of my classes. I um, didn't teach that semester. I stayed home. I was in bed a lot. Um, I, you know, I stopped listening to music. I stopped listening to news. Like, I was on this quest for silence. I, I, I couldn't hear myself think. 
And, you know, people would be asking me, you know, how are you feeling? How are you doing? All of that stuff. And I, I didn't even know. I didn't know. And so it was a lot of quiet time. I did a lot of reading. Um, it was a very, you know, it was an inward time. I did try, once I was up and about, you know, and able to drive again, I I did go to the studio. I tried to make things. I couldn't, like nothing felt like it was going to live up to what I had been through. Nothing, you know, like there wasn't any sense of fulfillment or satisfaction. Um, Mm -hmm. But what, you know, did start to happen was that I started to write and Mm -hmm. that, you know, the manifesto came out of that. Um, A lot of writing, just thinking about racial dynamics and how white folks die and how black folks die and the assumptions around death and how people grieve so, you know, once I was able to kind of, you know, to get through the, you know, the initial shock of it, which I have to say, sometimes I think about it now and it's still kind of shocking. I still have these moments where I'm like, oh my God, did that really happen to me? <laughs> Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think that the thing about silence, you know, when we think that we're in a state of silence or in a place of silence, it's not necessarily the same as emptiness either. Like sometimes silence and emptiness get collapsed on top of each other. Um, But there's a way that silence can also be incredibly full. You know, like there's a lot that is actually going on in the silence. And sometimes there's, you know, there's things that can be learned in that silence. from our sponsor you all y'all um not all of you but potentially potentially every single one of your your beings could be a sponsor we really committed this month or a couple months what like four episodes worth of commitment to building our intimate grassroots communities support and patreon is the place that we're doing that you can be a part of that And being a part of that looks like getting some early release content, getting things to have and hold. Because we got stuff. You're going to die's got little little memes framed, words about grief and love and community, little handkerchiefs with the reminder that we all need to cry and we need places to put our tears. These things wait for you. And they wait for you by becoming a patron through our patreon.com account. And so simply put, you can just go to patreon.com forward slash YG2D. And we've got a, a slew of you already that have contributed your support. And by the way, that support can look like $1 a month. And I'll do the quick math for you. That looks like $12 a year. And depending on where you live, let's say you live in San Francisco, that's half a drink somewhere. (laughs) That's worth half a drink at your most expensive bar. Uh, So it's like sacrifice half a drink a year and give that money to something that you care about and you want to keep happening. I I know it's weird to put it this way. Like I'm never going to say, hey, contribute to the podcast, support what we do or we won't do it anymore. I mean, that's just not true. Okay, and I know that doesn't really work really well as an urgent call for funding support from you, but I almost like want to put it that way because what I'm asking you to do is to make it easier for us to do what we're definitely going to do no matter what. The podcast is inevitable. It's like I say, why do I do this stuff? Why do I do you're going to die? I don't know what else to do. This is it. This is the thing. 
And the podcast is the newest version of it from this year. And so I'm encouraging you to sort of get my commitment and our commitment to you're going to die being in the world in all the ways it is, and really encourage you to meet that commitment with your own commitment. And that is by going to patreon.com forward slash YG2D, or you can enter Patreon and YG2D in Google, and it'll bring up our link. Go to that and contribute any amount you want every month to supporting You're Going to Die, the podcast, to being in your ears and more ears. There's that that wonderful slogan that I think I might be just putting to rest now. Here's the new slogan. Help us do what we're going to do, no matter what, by supporting us. <laughs> this is too long. Just go to patreon.com forward slash YG2D and become a part of our precious community, making this podcast possible. Those of you that have been listening to the show for a while now, you already know we have these moments embedded in the midst of every episode to honor the guest, usually. And I talked with Angela a little bit about a way we could create a moment like that for her. And I could say, like, I honor the guest by wanting this moment to happen and getting to introduce it. But really, Nick Jana, our producer and sound engineer extraordinaire, is the one who really does the honoring. And so what we have here is, I think, what we deserve more of Angela and her voice, the medicine of her voice and the medicine of her words, reading some poetry held by the music magic of Nick Jana. bridge from this world to the next, from me to you, from us to them. Where is it again? That bridge called your back or mine, the curve of your hip, your lip. I make a circle of my arms. That bridge bent unbroken where missing murdered women have spoken. Where is it again? That bridge from this world to the mother, body stolen by many others. Did you love her? That bridge braided, woven, glittered with their favorite tokens. Where is it again? Body black, body brown, arriving at blue. One breath, then two, the two, then three, the three, then free. Yes, free. Yes, free. That bridge from trigger to target, the arc of a bullet, seconds to split, a body open. One bullet, then two, through and through, the three chained free, the floor at four. Body black, body brown, surrender to blue. One breath, then two, the two, then three, the three, then free. Yes, free. Yes, free. We keep breathing. We breathe grieving. We grieve sweeping. We sweep seething. We seethe leaving, we leave breathing, we breathe sleeping, we sleep weaving, we weave weeping, we weep singing, we sing breathing, we keep breathing, we keep breathing.
I'm thinking a lot about the grief workshops we do and you knowing that and the silence was kind of coming up for me. There's this call, I think more often for me to be like, let, let the silence occur. That's actually what we need more, you know, sometimes. And then, and then the tears too, you know, when you start crying, it's like, if you're reading and you start crying, like, let yourself cry. Like the words actually aren't what's needed. The tears maybe are, but even now as you're speaking this, I wrote this for, um, I wrote this note for this grief and healing workshop I'm doing right now for medical professionals. And what I'm noticing is that maybe even more than usual, there's a way that I'm seeing the grief in that group not as crying and expressing sadness. And I think then it's this, like, I don't, I don't, I'm definitely not going to the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross end of it. Like, no, I see someone's anger or, you know, denial. Like, that's not what I mean to be doing here. But I actually even think like the numbness experience, you think about these medical professionals, like having shut down parts of themselves because of how much the grief is and that that's the grief. And then I even have this note that says, I literally wrote this today. It's essential. We make room for what is grief as crying or sadness. Isn't the only way in. And so then I connect that to what you're saying now, even to the awkwardness of talking about the, the event in 2015, the shooting, how you were shot. Like the awkwardness is also the way in here. Um, so I'm really like, really feeling that part of it. I love that, that it's like and it's important for me too to learn over the years, the risk there is in like being this guy who gets up and so readily cries and thinking like, that's the way it's got to go, but know that more, it's just an invitation for how it's got to go for you. Yeah. Well, and I think what's important about what you do is that you know, it's like as you're claiming your space to grieve and claiming the way that you grieve, that opens up possibilities for other people. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's a way of giving permission, you know, by you just being you, you doing what Ned does and how Ned does mm -hmm. grief. Right. And mm -hmm. so that's a really beautiful thing. And actually, it reminds me of um, when you came to my death class however many years ago on the Oakland campus. And I don't remember if you were reading something, you were talking about something and you started crying and my students were all looking around. They were looking at me like, is he okay? Is he okay? And I was just like, you know, kind of look, you know, and that, that became like a, 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 a an entry point into mm. like, what does grief look like? And why do people mm -hmm. become, uh, you know, uncomfortable when someone is having tears, right? You know, it's like mm -hmm. you could have been sitting there laughing and nobody would have been like, is he okay? You know, so, uh, you know, and I try to advocate for like tears and emotions and grief. It's all on the spectrum. You know, these are like mm -hmm. ways that we know that we're alive. So when I see people crying or, you know, it comes up often to an art school, like students cry and maybe it's in critique or something, you know, happens and, and when people apologize for their tears and I'm like, look, like, this is actually a good thing. Like, this is how you mm -hmm. know that you're alive. You're feeling yeah. things. And that's actually really beautiful. Yeah. And maybe like, I would even go so far as to say that we need you to, you know, we need you to cry if that's what's coming up for you. I do, <laughs> I do love remembering that moment. <laughs> I thought recently, I was like, wait a second, like, how emotional was I? Did Angela not invite me back because I just cried the whole time I was trying to talk to these? Like I've been invited, like I talked to the SFPCA, like I talked to like 200 of their employees at eight in the morning for, to start some kind of work uh, conference day. And, uh, you know, I'm there with Morgan and, and Scott playing music and I'm just up at the podium just crying about animals and pets. And, uh, and I think it was, like you said, someone in the audience and it's true needed me to do that and then also like mostly people are like what the hell like i got a work day starting with this guy like weeping up on the microphone um and it's both you know it's both it is confronting it is like intense to see people crack open um but that 
trusting over the years, like somebody needed it. Like there was someone in that class that day that I know, and maybe it was everybody because you were able to like take it and have it be something to like go deeper with it. But someone else also specifically needed me to cry in front of them. You know, I don't know. It helps me to keep, (laughs) keep crying without being ashamed every time to keep in mind that someone needs us to do it. Definitely. Definitely. And if you think about grief rituals where, you know, the first person who goes up to the altar and, you know, starts to cry or like really let it out, that, you know, the empathic response, other people then go into their grief, right? So it can, Mm -hmm. it opens it up and creates that space for the grief work to come through. So it's a gift. The question that I kind of keep coming back to um, is when you said you were trying to make meaning right away after getting shot, trying to make meaning out of it. And I'm just wondering if part of the meaning was just, (laughs) this is obviously maybe influenced by the day I just had, you know, going into rooms where people's bodies are like wrote, they're like suffering the violence of cancer, you know, um, how devastating sometimes it is, but I really like got emotional hearing you say I was trying to make meaning out of it. It feels like so important though, those, that particular set of words for my mom's death, you know, um, and, and yes, totally agree the, the, everything's, you know, supposed to happen for a reason. I, you know, I have a real aversion to that phrase and have easily learned not to say it to people and prefer the kind of empowering rephrasing of like, we're, 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 we're meaning makers, you know, like we, it's our, it's our pot. What's possible is for us to make the meaning or find the meaning of what's happened to us. But there's the feeling I'm having today. When I heard that, I felt emotional hearing you say it both for the ways that I feel like it acknowledged something that I know is true, but also this part is like, did you uncover the something unbearable? That's a great question. I mean, you know, I didn't have the why me question, which is something that comes Mm -hmm. up. I think when people are facing mortality, especially if it's a terminal illness or some kind of sudden, you know, near death experience, like why did that happen to me sort of thing. And I never had that question. So right there in that process, I knew that that it did happen specifically to me because like this was the work that I have committed my life to you know that mm-hmm. like of course it would happen to me like these this mm-hmm. is what I am thinking about <laughs> you know this is a conversation mm-hmm. that I'm in trying to understand you know what it means to be a mortal still alive, living, breathing person on the planet and how to navigate that. So, you know, I did have a moment like as I was sitting on the floor in my hallway, like waiting for, you know, the ambulance and the police and all of that, where, you know, the first thing I was thinking of was my son and, Mm -hmm. You know, first I was like, wait, what day is it? Where is he? You know, all of that. Mm -hmm. And like, okay, it's Tuesday morning, 10 o'clock. He's at school, you know, and remembering that he's okay. And then thinking about like what would happen if I died. You know, I was sitting there on the floor bleeding and waiting and looking around. I remember looking down the hallway and seeing dishes, you know, um, on the dish rack. And I, the other view I had was into my living room and looking at, you know, stuff on the couch and just thinking how mundane it was, how every day it was. And Mm. I was thinking about my son, like, what would happen if, you know, if I'm dying right now, like, is this it? And what I realized was that like, he will, he would be okay. You know, that he Mm -hmm. would be okay, that there are so many people that love him, that love me, that would come and take care of him and that he would be okay. 
And Mm. that, you know, that it's, I mean, it's not that it's unbearable to think that, you know, and young children lose their parents all the time. Like that happens all the time. And Mm -hmm. it was kind it was shocking though. It was shocking to realize Mm -hmm. like, oh, like he would be okay. (laughs) But I I was relieved, of course, to know that, but to imagine Mm -hmm. him growing up without me, you know, but even the other day, I mean, he's 15 now. And the other day we were in the kitchen and he said something like, you know, oh mom, what would I do without you? And I said to him, you know what? You would be okay because that's how I raised you. I raised you to be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I just can't help but think about your mom and kind of what y'all have been through the last couple of years, the way maybe that some of this connects there too. Yeah. I think about my mom a lot in this, the whole thing and how it was probably the worst for her, you know, mm-hmm. I can't imagine what that yeah. would have been like. Hmm. And, you know, we have cried over it. We've been on the floor holding each other. Um, we've done a lot of grieving together. I, for a long time, she was really trying to hold it together for me, you know, and hmm. um, yeah. What did, I was like, my inclination is to imagine that her not holding it together was actually what was needed eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, I think I have taught my mother a lot about grief. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you dreamt about your dad since then? No, I haven't. Do you find ways to communicate with him? Yeah, there's a way that he, I feel like he shows up in other people. I've had a few experiences where, you know, I would like have a conversation or an interaction with someone. And then like right after I'd be like, oh, that was my dad. You know, Mm -hmm. that was my dad. There was this one time, um, there was this old black dude who was coming into my yard to get water. And, you know, I have like a faucet, a spigot in the front of my house. And the first time it happened, all I heard was like that there was someone in my yard and there was water and it was noise. And I was, I was waking up. It was like the middle of the night. And I went outside my front steps, the same front steps where I had got been shot. Mm-hmm. And I was about to, you know, like yell at him, like, what are you, you know, what are you doing? Get out of my yard. And then I realized like, oh, it was this old man and he was just thirsty, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I was like, okay, I, you know, of course, like, please get some water. And mm-hmm. there's a way when I think about what it is that my ancestors need from me and the ways that I can feed them, you know, sometimes it's literally about water, <laughs> water on the Mm. altar or someone coming in to drink water from, you know, the hose in my yard. Um, Whether it's something that I'm making in the studio when I'm, you know, making a new sculpture and I have this experience of like feeding the sculpture, the more hair that I put onto it, the more gold, all of those materials feel like I'm feeding my ancestors. So, those moments, there have been a few moments like that where I have realized I've had certain interactions with people and then realized usually after the fact of like, oh, that was my dad.
Also, if you want to check out more from Angela Hennessy, you can go to her website, which I'll just put in the liner notes. I'm not going to I'm not going to spell it out. Uh, that's a old lesson that my friend Nick Jana taught me <laughs> or made fun of me about until I stopped doing it. <laughs> hey, Nick. No, I didn't make fun of you. <laughs> I don't remember. It was so long ago, but it mattered and it changed my life. So now I don't I don't spell websites anymore. Thank you for that. <laughs> It changed your life. <laughs> yeah. If you ever wonder, like, are you making a difference? You are. Oh, gosh. That's sad. <laughs> it's just one way. I can't go into all the ways right now. <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, but I will go into some of them, though. Um, here's a way, of, a way of going into some of them, acknowledging you um, for being a tender, heartfelted, heartfelted, tender, heartfelted person, human being that, like, puts so much into this podcast. I'm wondering if you can answer a question. You told mm-hmm. me that while you edited Angela's and uh, my conversation, you cried a couple times. And I'm just wondering why. Oh, just about that idea that has comforted and made me cry a lot when I've thought about losing somebody in your life and then seeing them show up in other people and also mm. show up in yourself. One of the most comforting things that I've been able to tell myself when someone's gone is that I've retained some part of them in me or that they make appearances in the random cast of characters in the movie of your life, like the the chance encounters with somebody shows you a little glimpse of this person that perhaps you're not able to access in in the living world mm. and that idea is just so beautiful and it when angela was talking about that uh with her father um that's what that's where it got me um i know that part of what touched you about this and related to that is this ancestry you know connection like the work of connecting to our ancestors making room for the ancestors and i was wondering if you felt like sharing a little bit of where your writing work intersects with that possibility or making room for that in our lives yeah i had a a genealogy report that an uncle my uncle ordered uh on the on my father's side up the patrilineal line and going back like seven or eight generations into poland in the 1700s and it was a a pretty extensive for what is possible report on the birth and death and lives of my ancestors. And I took that report and I just started writing kind of creatively around it, but all based off of research around the time period, things that I knew about, you know, farmers, uh, uh, Catholics, uh, people emigrating from Poland, you know, or things that I learned. And mm-hmm. I just kind of extended this story and I wrote more details and made it more kind of um, sensory and impressionistic. Mm. And it was really beautiful. And I, and in this report, I saw the name of my ancestor on that line, who was the first person to cross the ocean from Poland to the United States. And I was just struck by seeing this name for the first time of such a consequential ancestor. It's my grandfather's grandfather mm-hmm. that I had never heard before. I had never been mentioned in my family. And, you know, I'm sure we all have people like this in our ancestry that were (laughs) lived and died to carry on this name. And then we don't even know their name or don't, don't spend a minute thinking of them. Mm -hmm. And so I've been just doing work of just, just spending time to think of these people and write their name out and uh, expand, expand on their story, you know, and I've also been searching in ancestry.com with, for like newspaper articles and finding, you know, stories about these people. And even when it's uh, a very mundane fact or something, I don't know, uh, not that you, what you're expecting or idealizing in these people, just to get a fuller story and to live with these ancestors. Um, it's such a rare thing to do. And I, I feel so appreciative of it when I do it. It's that same sort of idea of just like seeing these echoes and smiles and resonances of family. And sometimes you just see like, wow, that great uncle sure had the same uh, forehead as me or something, something like that, you know, (laughs) or like, like in a, like in a movie when the same actor plays the, the grandson in the, in the flashback, you know, and you're like, yeah, wow, that. I could see it in there, you know, it's amazing. (laughs) There's somebody who looked a lot like me walking around 
wherever, uh, you mm -hmm. know, 80 years ago. And it's just really comforting in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What a trip. Have you, have you been doing this in, in your workshops at all? No, I mean, there's times where we make a little room in the grief workshops for that particular thing, like the grief of our ancestry, um, but also like not just lineage, but what we've been handed down through culture and kind of the ancestry of humanity. Um, I love, I've done a lot of what you're describing. There was a, a year or so where I just interviewed all my family members, living mm. family members, recorded those interviews, and then collected um, email stories. I would send questions to a lot of my family members to try to fill in the stories of people they were connected to and closer to than I am. And, uh, and I have the family tree, like ancestry.com, you know, pretty far back. But uh, I'd say it's missing maybe the creativity that's required now to like deepen the relationship and not just creativity, but like I think something you described with one of your prompts around uh, using dialogue, like communicating, mm -hmm. you're doing creative writing to create the dialogue you might be might have or are actually having. Um, I think that's the line, right? It's like, maybe I'm having this or the way you said is just let it go. Don't overthink it. Like, what's the response? What's the saying? And that there's a connection there that's real and does not need to be defined more than that. Doesn't have to be about ghosts and spirits and people visiting us, but there's something there where creativity meets like intuition and opening, you know, being vulnerable, opening our heart and just seeing what comes up. And, yeah. um, I feel like that's missing from much of the work I've done with my own personal family lineage and ancestry, the yeah. time it would take to be like, what else is there that I haven't dug into that does def definitely require a little more work and time. Yeah. I, and I give you permission to do that. A lot of people think they don't have the authority to, to give those answers of their ancestors. But I always think about you know, imagine your ancestor in whatever afterlife, um, how stoked they would be <laughs> mm -hmm. that you took an afternoon to sit down and write an imaginary conversation, even if you got things wrong, even if you're mm -hmm. like, uh, if, if they were like, I, I don't like raisins, what are you talking about? You know, mm -hmm. even if you got details wrong or something like the, the <laughs> yeah. just the exercise and empathy to sit down and spend an hour with Evelyn or Chester or whoever your ancestors are and ask them questions and imagine what the answer is yeah based on your intuition based on you know whatever what a wonderful exercise in empathy for people that it's so easy to just not try you know not mm. make the effort cuz oh they're gone what's there to say who's who's there to talk about you know and i yeah. in writing that story i this line just came out of me that that i just kind of sat with and just was like oh yeah that's true i said sometimes it's easier to talk to the dead than the living. Um, I know I have a lot of family members that I don't talk to. I just kind of imagine there's a political ideological divide where it's just not going to go anywhere. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, after we've let go of identity and affiliation and all these things after death, it is easier to have a conversation. And I always start with just the fears and the wounds, like talk about like, uh, you know, uh, I, I get nauseous easily. What was it like when you were crossing the ocean on that boat to America? Like that must've been nauseating, you know, um, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really appreciate that last note. Cause what I was thinking all along is what I've heard when I, when I have brought up in the workshops and, and also just in these kinds of conversations with people, the possibility of our ancestors being like assholes or like representing mm -hmm. a time and a perspective that that's, that's, uh, and, and even like trauma, traumatizing, you know, like, like family members in our lineage that were abusive, maybe not to us, but to like our parent, um, and the way these things get handed down. And so the invitation for going back to the ancestors, I can hear someone, including me, but someone listening to this and thinking like, I don't want to talk to them, you know, mm -hmm. um, they hurt us. Yeah. Um, but that maybe there is a way to access and communicate with them because of that. Like maybe even the conversation that might only need to happen once. And also a reminder, like maybe never, like trust yourself if you don't want to talk to that one particular ancestor, but that maybe getting to and acknowledging the wounding or the trauma from then and that they were maybe were a source of could also be an exercise um, of value, uh, but yours intimately. Um, and then, 
at the minimum, based on what you've shared today, this invitation to our listeners to creatively, intuitively engage with our ancestors. At a minimum, it sounds like you might find out whether they like raisins or not. And that could be a big, <laughs> that could be a big, big win. The first, the first thing that I say is let go of the distinctions between fiction and fact. They seem so important to us, just even when we're deciding what book to read or, oh, do you like fiction or nonfiction? But in this realm, I learned so much about, quote, channeling from writing fiction and building characters and getting to know characters um, uh, more so than any other kind of writing because it requires listening, stepping into the unknown, um, just believing that there's something, that there's going to be a bridge over this canyon that you're walking across. I learned so much from that process. And when I sit down to write, I'm like, I don't know, maybe I am making this up, but maybe not. But like, again, what a beautiful way to spend an hour of talking to my grandmother. You know, mm. in whatever mm -hmm. way that that's true, that is a wonderful yes. way that a hundred years from now, if somebody sat down and did that for me when I was dead, I would be, <laughs> whatever way they did <laughs> Yeah, it, you would, would be, be stoked. Yeah. I would be so stoked. Yeah. I love raisins. Um, thank you for asking. <laughs> uh, I love that in a way that connects to what I just did with a couple workshops, like two weeks in a row where we're talking about angels. We're talking about prayer. You know, all mm. these things are very charged. Uh, terms and especially influenced by uh, traumatizing <laughs> impact of of the church, uh, maybe um, on some of our lives. And uh, and 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 I wouldn't say I had that trauma, but there's a way I don't really definitively think there's an angel or angels, or definitively think prayer is this certain way. Um, but what I like and and connect to from what you're describing is this potential for the possibility of something if we remove like the fact and fiction of the angel the fact and fiction of the dead and where the dead are the fact and fiction of what the ghost is the fact and fiction of what prayer definitively is the prayer could just be a question as much as it is you yeah. you know asking something of some god somewhere and that in that lies what i think you're describing a version of you know some kind of connectedness some yeah. maybe answers but also yeah. like a world unfurling or unfolding out of like who you are and how you relate to infinity. <laughs> yeah, because by definition, it's in the periphery. And mm -hmm. anytime you look directly at it, it's going to disappear. Mm -hmm. So learning to regard the periphery and accept it as just that is mm -hmm. a skill. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. Mm -hmm. Thanks for all your work on this one. And thank you everybody for listening. Again, check our liner notes for all the things to connect to Angela, to connect to Nick, connect to me. You can email us at pod at yg2d.com. If you want to send us any content, you have ideas, you want to be on the show, you know someone who should be on the show. Uh, also, please, we're making the big push to get your support to make this podcast easier for us to do. And funding is one of those ways. So go to patreon.com forward slash YG2D and you can become a patron for as little as $1 a month. Please, please do join that special supportive community that we do need and are so grateful for. I want to thank the most recent review that we got through Apple Podcasts. And the review was, thank you. And that's it. So thank you. Sometimes we need reminders that what we're doing here means something to somebody. And we don't need that a lot, but it does matter when it happens. So thank you. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Nick. Until next time, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.